1: If you define your value by your productivity and you see your needs as threatening because they're a threat to that productivity, you can't even tell and honor when you want to say no to something because you think saying no is inherently worse than saying yes.
2: That was Dr. Devin Price on Psychologists Off the Clock.
0: We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of ACT Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on ACT Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California.
3: From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schonbrun, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard,
0: author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock.
2: Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash P-O-T-C to get 5% off your entire order. It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety, successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Hi, everybody. This is Diana, and I am thrilled to share with you something that could really help you become more psychologically flexible in the new year. I have a course for you. Many of you are interested in learning more about acceptance and commitment therapy and how to apply it to your life, and I'm offering a Foundations of ACT course that is a virtual, self-guided, deep dive into ACT. This course is for the general public, but also for practitioners who want to learn more about the six core processes of psychological flexibility. You'll gain tools to unhook from challenging thoughts, cultivate acceptance and willingness, and take committed action towards what you care most about. So here's how it works. There are six modules to the course, and each module offers bite-sized teachings, meditations and visualizations, journal prompts, handouts, and experiential practices. You'll get a chance to take a pre- and post-self-assessment to check your growth and psychological flexibility. And the course launches on January 3rd. It's a great holiday gift for you or someone you love. And if you pre-register at drdianahill.com slash courses by December 15th, you get 50 off and entered in to win a free Act Daily Journal. So go to drdianahill.com and register, and I'm so excited to take this journey and to act with you.
2: Hi there, everyone. This is Debbie, and I'm here today with Jill to introduce an episode I did with Dr. Devin Price about their book, Laziness Does Not Exist. And Jill and I were just talking about what we're going to say in our co-host intro, and I think the problem we're having is that this episode had so much relevance for both of us. And we had so many thoughts about this that we have to rein ourselves in here a little bit. Because I know for myself, this is a book that a client recommended to me. And it had a huge personal impact on me personally, it just blew my mind. And then I have seen themes around this issue of laziness and some of the cultural and systemic issues feeding into this laziness lie, as Devin calls it, or this narrative we get into around laziness. I've seen it in clients, you know, early career professionals. I've seen it in, you know, older clients as well who have just really, uh, this is really embedded in the way that people are are thinking. Jill, what are your thoughts?
3: Yeah, I mean, it, my mind was blown because I went into this expecting that we were going to talk about us as individuals And really it became a a big piece of the conversation was about systemic issues and that we live in a culture where our sense of worth is dictated by how busy and how productive we are. And so much of what the two of you talked about really resonated with me. And it was like I was thinking about personal example after personal example after personal example of ways I've seen this play out in my own life.
2: Yeah, me too. I completely have have the same experience. Jill, can you tell a few examples from your own life about that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think early in my career I worked in a healthcare system that is a large employer of mental health professionals, and I saw person after person after person getting burnt out because of the productivity requirements and the lack of flexibility and things yeah. like having to ask for a vacation day 3 months in advance, which is just unreasonable. Um, And so for me in that situation, I ultimately ended up leaving. Many, many of my colleagues have also left. But part of the systemic issue is there were people speaking up. It wasn't that individual staff failed to bring these issues up to the leadership. It's that everyone who left was just very quickly replaced by another early career person. Um, And so there was just no motivation for that system to change. And so for me, I left that job. My next job was a more academic position, which I loved, but I saw in the name of being a team player, people were saying yes and taking on far more than what was supposed to be required of them contractually, because nobody wants to be the person who says, well, that's not my job. I only agreed to do this much. So there was burnout happening there. And I had sort of learned from my first experience where I thought, you know what, I'm just, I'm going to set limits here and I'm going to work what I've agreed to work And if that means taking on X number of students, I'm not going to take more. And what I also did was I talked about this with my colleagues and said, hey, I think you are amazing that you're so willing to take on extra and work. But here's the problem with that. As long as we pick up the slack, there is no incentive for leadership to provide more resources makes sense. And what I found was my fears was that I would be labeled someone who's not a team player, someone who's lazy because I wasn't taking on extra, that I would disappoint everyone. It it just didn't really happen. You know, it was it was fine. And and certainly there are times where I've set limits. Like for example, I've recently started saying no to taking on unpaid labor because I'm asked to do that a lot as I think many are, especially women. And I've gotten reactions from people like, wait, what? Uh, Maybe you don't understand the ask. I mean, this isn't that much of your time and it's really easy. And I'm like, no, I understand the ask. And my answer is no. So people have been disappointed. They've been surprised that I would dare to set these limits. And guess what? It's fine. Like, it's a little uncomfortable But I think, and you and Devin talk a lot about this, Is like, um, and they say it's a superpower to be able to tolerate disappointing people, the feelings you feel when you disappoint someone or the guilt you feel when you say no. And that has been so true for me in my life. What about you, Debbie?
2: Well, it's just such an interesting problem because I think it is so ingrained and expected. It's almost, you know, we all need to pay the bills. We need to have a job. Maybe we even care about our work. And so we just feel like we're always hustling and we have to work, whether it's in our job, home, childcare, caregiving, whatever the case may be, that we do start to internalize that. And I think for myself, I certainly feel it. There's certain areas of my life where I feel very motivated and engaged and I can, you know, no problem. But even in those areas, it's hard sometimes to take a break or to say no. And then there's other areas where I get self-critical because maybe it's something that I neglect, or I just don't prioritize, and then I'm constantly feeling guilty. And I think just being aware of that tendency is really important. And then, like you said, we can start to set some boundaries and say no to things. But that's not easy to do. You know, I mean, sometimes I think you're right, Jill, that we do say no, and and it's okay, it's fine. But there's other times when it's a huge act of courage. Like, if no one in your law firm ever takes a vacation day, and you're like, I'm going to take a week off because I need to recharge and I want to go sit on the beach somewhere, there can be some consequences to that. And I think it can be very difficult to do that. It's courageous, but it's also sometimes there is a bit of a pushback.
3: You're, You're right. It's a huge act of courage. And maybe if more of us were willing to engage in those acts of courage, it could actually shift the culture a little bit. You know, if one person at the law firm actually takes their vacation time then maybe somebody else will be willing to do that. And especially if they're talking about it, you know, maybe there can be some shift as long as we just keep doing what's expected and not talking about it. Again, there's like no incentive for the leadership or the system or the organization to change.
2: Well, and that's part of the reason I think conversations like this, books like Devin's book, I'm just hearing this starting to come out more and more here in the US lately where people are starting to speak up about it, starting to notice it. Really taking a look at this and recognizing, you know, this is toxic. We can't keep doing this. So, along those lines, we hope that you enjoyed this conversation and that you find it as uh, mind blowing as Jill and I did. Dr. Devin Price is a social psychologist, professor, author, and proud autistic person. Their research has appeared in journals such as the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology. Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin, and the Journal of Positive Psychology. Devin's writing has appeared in outlets such as the Financial Times, Huffington Post, Slate, Business Insider, PBS, and NPR. They live in Chicago, where they serve as an assistant professor at Loyola University Chicago School of Continuing and Professional Studies. Next year, Devin will be releasing their book, Unmasking Autism, Discovering the New Faces of Neurodiversity. Very exciting, Devin. And in the meantime, we're here to talk today about their book, Laziness Does Not Exist. Devin, it's an incredible book, just a goldmine of ideas that kind of blew my mind personally, and I can't wait to talk about it today. Congratulations on both of your books, Devin, and thank you so much for being here.
1: Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah. So your book, it's called Laziness, Laziness Does Not Exist, and it's about this thing that you call the laziness lie. And so I just thought it'd be nice to start out with some basics. What do you mean by the laziness lie? What is that?
1: Yeah. So the laziness lie is a really deeply embedded cultural belief system that we are really strongly indoctrinated into um, in American culture, but really throughout the world. And uh, the laziness lie, as I um, talk about it, has three main tenets. Um, The first is that your worth is defined by your productivity. Um, the second is that you can't trust any of your needs or limitations because those things are just a barrier to productivity. So they are threatening to your self-worth. So you have to ignore them. And then the third uh, tenet of the laziness lie is that there is always more that you could be doing. So even if you are one of those uh, rare people who can really sustain working 60-hour work weeks or, or whatever else, um, your house isn't clean enough. You don't exercise enough. You don't volunteer enough. Um, You're not uh, learning enough about the world um, or developing new enough marketable skills. There's basically an endless litany of things you should be doing. So no matter how busy you are, you're always going to feel lazy and like you're coming up short.
2: Right. You'll never get there, right? I would love to unpack a couple of those tenets a little bit more, starting with the one around, the very first one. And I really appreciate about your book, something that you highlighted that just hit me like a ton of bricks was about the moral judgment part of that, right? That there's this sense that if you're worthwhile as a human, you are just very industrious. Could you just talk a little bit more about that, like sort of how that shows up as a moral framework?
1: Yeah. So to really understand that, I think we have to look back to where it came from and where it really was popularized. And that's the Puritans and kind of puritanical Christianity. Um, So this certainly isn't true of all flavors of Christianity, but certainly the kind of dominant one um, that has kind of been really deeply entrenched in American culture via the Protestant work ethic and things like that. Um, And the people who really spread it throughout the U.S. as it was being colonized were the Puritans who believed that if you had a strong work ethic, a drive to get things done, that was a sign you had already been saved. So it wasn't even about earning your right into heaven. It was that people who are driven are blessed. And people who are listless, unmotivated, can't get things done, unfocused, whatever it is, they're basically damned already. And so then you don't have to worry about what happens to them. And we don't have to take care of them. As a society, because they are wicked and lazy, and that was also a really useful justification for enslavement, and was a very uh, popular um, bit of the writing and an explanation of why enslavement was kind of "quote unquote" okay at the time. This idea that there are certain types of people and even certain races of people that are not as driven, uh, not as human, and like need the structure of being forced to work pushed on them. So it's been with us in a really powerful way culturally since that time, and it continues to manifest today in how we talk about what the value of life is, whether someone is quote unquote contributing to society, which if you even really take a step back and think about that framework of is someone contributing to society, what is society other than people? Why wouldn't we ask what society is doing? for its members rather than what a person is doing for society. But it's such a third rail. It's such an embedded assumption into how our culture and economic system works that we don't take that step to look back and question it and think about why are we saying a person needs to earn their right to be alive? Um, but it's it's hard to get people to the place of even questioning yeah,
2: that. Yeah. And I want to talk more a bit later about that some of the cultural aspects of this and also just, I mean, highlight what you're saying about how it comes out across as as like a judgment we form about people and also about ourselves, right? And that when we really latch onto that, I mean, first of all, we can be so self-critical with ourselves. Like if we loaf around all day where we feel like we're lazy and Not, you know, we just get into so much self criticism about it, but it also really does. We can judge other people, you know, that homeless person you pass with no idea what they're actually going through, but it justifies, I think, some, I don't know, kind of nasty behavior towards other people.
1: Yeah, laziness as an explanation blocks systemic critique or looking at the social context around a person. So many of us from a very young age, we hear this message that you're not supposed to give money to someone who's on the street asking for it because they're just going to spend it on drugs. And you might even hear the more uh, insidious idea that, you know, they need to uh, work their way out of it, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And, um, and and the latent message there is that they deserve what situation they're in. And it's because they didn't work hard enough or they made bad choices. And That explanation is very convenient and comforting because then you don't need to consider whether it's possible that you could end up in the exact same situation or um, maybe the world isn't fair and isn't a meritocracy and someone ends up in that situation because they're, you know, a queer teen whose parents were unaccepting and kicked them out of the house or um, there's someone who's self-medicating for PTSD or you know they've been applying to jobs for years, but once you kind of have that scarlet letter of being unemployed or being houseless um, on your on your records, it doesn't matter how hard you work. Um, so of course you're going to fill your time with anything that helps blunt the pain. Um, so yeah, so laziness is this this shorthand for I'm not going to worry about the larger cultural and economic forces that create these problems and the ways that society has failed someone. I'm just going to see myself as fundamentally different from that person. Or I'm going to tell myself, as long as I keep working really, really hard, I'll never have to worry about being in that person's position.
2: Right. Oh my gosh. I think what you just said is so important. Partly it creates that mental distance like, oh, that could never happen to me, which is just, you know, almost like could be a little delusional almost, right? It gives you this false sense of security, but then it leads to that next piece. Like, well, if I just work really hard, if I just keep everything going, if I keep doing this overwork thing that I've been doing, and that just feeds the laziness lie, right? This sense of like doing, 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 we can never do enough. And that's a, that becomes like a security blanket almost, then I don't have to worry about it.
1: Right. Yeah. It is this self-perpetuating cycle where if you think or you have been convinced to think that the world is just and that working very hard is your only way to kind of earn any stability in society and working hard is, is your way out and people who suffer are, are lazy people who didn't work hard, um, that is a very cruel worldview when it comes to being applied to other people. I'm not going to worry about this person who's suffering. I'm not going to worry about our social safety nets not taking care of disabled people um, or traumatized people. Um, but it is also a worldview that then tells you that you are on the hook for yourself and you can't count on any other people either, right? Like you that you need to constantly work hard forever and never be vulnerable because if you did, you would be no different from that person who, you know, has been unemployed for years and is sleeping on the street. Um, so it's both uncompassionate to other people and towards yourself um, because it's just purely you know, evaluating you in terms of what your output is and saying that you should live and die by how much you can do. Even though if we look at the span of human life, most of our lives, we are not productive. We all become unproductive eventually. So it is a dead end path, um, no matter what, even if we are some of the people who are privileged enough to be able to work hard um, and be you know, financially stable for some period of time.
2: Can we go a little bit of a detour into the capitalist piece of this, the capitalism? I mean, I just keep seeing critiques of capitalism everywhere I look in terms of I do a lot of work with burnout and just how, I don't know, toxic our culture has gotten around work and overwork. And I think that there's a really important piece of that cultural element there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I would say everything that I've said so far is a critique of capitalism, right? Um, the, these belief systems came under um, colonialism and capitalism, and um, particularly an economy that was dependent on uh, enslaved people. Who how do you how do you get people to work hard when they have nothing to gain from it? Um, and uh, indentured servants and poor working class people who have been fed, you know, for for centuries at this point in this country, this mythology that. Um, they shouldn't question why the person above them makes so much more money off of their labor than they do. Instead, they should be judgmental of people who are, you know, their coworker who isn't working as hard or, you know, the person who isn't working and is getting a handout, quote unquote, from the government. Um, it's all really, uh, capitalist indoctrination, um, to get people on board with being exploited as badly as workers are today because of course we're working far longer for far less wages than than people in decades past um the only way you get people on board with that is you kind of tantalize them with this hope that this is how you prove you're a good person this is how you prove you're a good worker someday you're going to ascend the ranks of the corporate ladder and whatever else and and finally be comfortable and finally earn the right to rest rather than seeing that as just a basic human need that everybody has, um, no matter what.
2: Yeah, it's so interesting to me how there's such a social justice component to your work and others. I mean, there's a movement happening around this. I don't know if you're familiar. I follow the NAP ministry on Instagram. Uh, Trisha Hersey and her, you know, people that she's working with have this idea of rest, not just being a privilege, but a human right, but one that's sort of been taken away from people. And so it's Really, what your work, and I think others who are doing similar work, it really is like a form of social resistance.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that was something that was really important to me, that even though this book is categorized as self-help, it's kind of a little bit of a Trojan horse in a way, where I'm trying to kind of reach people who are really overworked and burnt out and might typically only reach for one of those books that's like, here's how to set better boundaries at work. Here's how to stand up for yourself better. So often we talk about these things as if they're a individual neurosis, right? Like you're a workaholic and you need to learn to say no, or you're burnt out and so you need to find a different job. But that's really not the answer because almost every job is going to be hardwired to extract as much productivity out of you as they can get away with um, for as little pay, because that's how the economic system we're in works and is designed to work. And so, you know, yeah, there are some tools in the book for setting better boundaries in your life and surviving this awful system, but systemic problems really require systemic solutions. And so we all need to get into this together And and I think that's a really powerful thing about Trisha Hershey's work that um, we can't approach rest and setting boundaries and all of these things as something that you do if you have the power to at work. If you're someone who has a high enough status position or high enough status in society, let's say as a white person to get away with, you know, using your vacation days, we all need to together say, and we're starting to see this now with like the Great Resignation. Uh, we need people to just kind of, as a collective, say, this can't go on anymore. We're not going to do this. We're going to refuse. And and that's, I think, a really important part of rest is resistance that sometimes people miss, um, that, you know, it, it may begin with individual steps, but if it, we need to all kind of do it together um, to change what the norm is and kind of build a new culture from the ground up.
2: Well, I appreciate that you're speaking out about this very much. And that's part of why I really wanted to have you on the podcast, even though, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist, I care about the level of the individual, and we'll get into that. But it's really important to acknowledge that up front, that this is really is a systemic and it's a cultural issue, and that it's not going to change unless we take a head on look and people start speaking up about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a really important thing for clinicians to be mindful of because I've heard from so many people who they go to a therapist and they're suffering under these pressures, the pressures of capitalism. And there are a lot of clinicians who are not comfortable even acknowledging and finding a way to hold space for the fact that the world is unfair and there are things that you don't have control over as an individual. And of course, you want to give your clients tools to help them individually survive this stuff and, and stand up for themselves. and. Build resilience and all those things. But um it's it's just really dismaying how many clinicians aren't comfortable alongside that also saying, like, hey, if you're struggling, that's not actually your fault. And there are there's things you can do, but there's a limit to how much you can do. And so don't beat yourself up or think that you're crazy for continually getting into these workaholic patterns because it's the system around you that's making almost everybody do that um, and and I think that can there's a way to speak to that stuff that is incredibly validating and can Validate. help how yeah and can help empower people instead of just you know being kind of a, a all doom and gloom kind of learned helplessness kind of loop or anything
2: like right it's validating empowering and compassionate in the sense that like hey you're not to blame for this right we don't need to be blaming the victim here so another tenant of the laziness lie that I wanted to highlight is about um, just not being able to trust your own feelings and limits, right? Almost this sense that we're all, you know, lazy, slothful people deep down inside. And we have to just override that by working all the time and like working when we're tired and taking on too much and then exercising and cleaning the house at the end of the day and that kind of thing. And one of the things I like to do in my practice is to look at at emotions with curiosity and sort of see what they're telling us, like the wisdom of emotions. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about, you know, if we were to look at it that way, instead of like, we have to override this, what do you think that we can learn from those moments when we're tired, we're unproductive, we're, I don't know, having trouble focusing?
1: Yeah, I think um, taken to its logical um, endpoint, it would completely upend how most of us live just the nature of the work day for most of us is such that we push through when we're feeling listless and unfocused. We don't make time to sit with our sadness or our grief. I mean, just look at the pandemic and how that's affected most of us. And, and most of us have just kind of kept going along to work and logging into Zoom and trying to not look dead behind the eyes as, as you know, an incredibly traumatic, like international mass death event is happening. And, you know, forest fires and any number of other like ecological disasters, the amount that we are forced to ignore our feelings uh, just for the sake of kind of being productive and seeming quote unquote professional is just, it's just massive. Um, And, and that extends to, you know, it's both macro and micro. So we're ignoring our massive grief. We're ignoring massive societal issues that um, tackling them would upend the workday for most of us. And we're also just ignoring the little things like, Oh, I'm going to write a couple emails before I get up and go to the bathroom, or I'm going to work through lunch and not really sit with um, my food and kind of savor it and listen to my body and what it's craving. And you know, when I'm hungry and when I'm full and all of those things, um, it really frays our connection to our body in a really fundamental way. And, and I would also even argue that, um, If you define your value by your productivity and you see your needs as threatening because they're a threat to that productivity, it erodes your whole relationship to consent. You can't even tell and honor when you want to say no to something because you think saying no is inherently worse than saying yes. And so there's just so many extensions of that. You say yes to expectations at work that you don't have capacity for, you let people kind of take of your time and attention when you're already at your capacity and you just ignore when your body is, you know, getting a little bit sick, tired, hungry, antsy, when you need to take a walk, all of that kind of stuff. Um, And, and listening to those things would mean just having so much more of a connection to our bodies and to physical reality that most of us, especially if you're working some kind of desk job all day, or you just don't have control over your hours, which is most jobs. Um, You know, we're really divorced from our bodies and our emotions most of the time.
2: I'm working very hard on getting better at this in my own life. I mean, I think as someone who's been high achieving and worked very hard most of my life, I have really learned how to tune that out. And I think that it takes a little, I mean, your book has helped and some other tools just to tune in more. And I know that, you know, this culture of overwork, it really does take a toll on people. And you have your own personal story around that, which you share in detail in the book, but I was wondering if you could maybe use yourself in it as an example to talk about the toll that this cycle takes on us. If we do just tune out those signals and just work, work, work all the time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, so my life is a um, an illustration of how even if you play by the rules of this game, um, it's never going to bring you happiness and it is going to have a real toll on you. Um, So, you know, I was a very like high achieving, um, you know, kid, gifted education, that whole complex that many people have talked about. Um, And for me, it was definitely also related to being both autistic and being trans, where I knew I was separate from kind of society's ideals. And so from a young age, I knew or I believed that I needed to achieve a lot and make a lot of money and get a lot of impressive credentials because that would protect me from the fact that society wasn't going to accept me for who I really was. So I, you know, took college classes when I was in high school, I finished college early, went straight ahead to grad school, really just kind of lived a life of the mind or whatever, trying to finish that as quickly as possible. Completed my PhD when I was 25, went straight on to a postdoc and pretty much right after I defended my dissertation. I got a really, really bad fever, um, and it would hit me every single night um, at around like 6 or 7 p.m., just like bone shaking, you know, 103 degree fever. Um, And it lasted from February, this was 2014, February of 2014, all the way through November of that year, every single night, really debilitating fever and chills. I had anemia, I had a heart murmur, got all these medical tests really couldn't figure out what it was, you know, like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, all of this different stuff. Um, And the only thing that resolved it ultimately was I had to just slow down and rest because even during many of those months that I was sick, I was still trying to work a full-time job and exercise. And like, it's so sick. I was trying to cram as much productivity as possible into those hours of the day that I didn't feel sick, knowing that I was going to get sick every evening. And eventually I just had to realize like, this is absurd. This isn't working. You need to listen to your body and just rest. Um, and it was only after a couple of months of of doing that that my health came back. And that's what really got me on the path of saying, okay, this is not tenable. What academia expects of people isn't tenable. What capitalism uh, demands of people isn't healthy. Um, and I need to forge a completely different life. And that's that's what got me interested in this as a topic.
2: Is that? I'm just really curious you've made a lot of changes it sounds like to be able to do that and you've made a conscious effort and i'm just wondering in your life now it seems like you from reading your book it seems like you are deliberate about that is that hard for you to this day do you ever get sucked back into that laziness lie way of thinking yourself
1: oh yeah oh my god i'm i'm horrible at this stuff like i'm I, i'm you know i have i i My last book, this book that's coming, well, my first book, when it came out, I was in the process of writing another book while I was doing press for that book. And now, you know, my second book is about to come out and I'm working on a proposal for a third. Like, I'm so um, neurotic. And when I have downtime, I feel guilty and I don't know what to do with it. And I don't know how to enjoy it. Like, you don't unlearn, uh, you know, three decades of cultural programming that dates back, you know, centuries before you were born um, easily. And it's still constantly that programming is still coming from me from the outside in my workplace and in the publishing industry and everyone around me and everybody like, you know, uh, giving me feedback that is still based on, you know, you've done something impressive. And so that's what we like about you. You know what I mean? Like, it's so sick. There's no individual way to like climb yourself out of it, unfortunately. Um, so I'm constantly finding ways that it's still hurting me. And hurting the people I care about, Um, and and people that know me in real life think I'm such a like they they make fun of me in a in you know in that way that only friends can that I'm just like so full of it because I'm telling other people (laughs) to do less, but I still have these neuroses. Like I think everybody has them, and and I've gotten really good at saying no to things, but that doesn't mean that I don't still have this like insecure little animal clawing away inside of me that's always saying like you're not doing enough, you're a bad person, you need to earn your right to live, like. I probably will always be warning with that for sure.
2: But hey, you know, awareness is huge and it seems like you are aware that that is a struggle for you and you can make make some better choices, right, around that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think, you know, behavior and feelings don't have to be perfectly lined up. So I can have these insecurities, but I can still know when I behave in certain ways, when I only keep, you know, maybe two meetings maximum on my schedule, um, for any given work day, I am healthier and I'm nicer to the people that I love. And I, you know, like I can see the behavior, I can recognize what I need to do. Um, and you can, you can train yourself to have new ha- habits and new limits. Um, especially once you get better at that piece that we were talking about earlier, which is listening to your body and listening to your feelings. So I am at least now in a place where when I'm really frantic and stressed out, I know that that's a signal that I've been doing way too much and saying yes to way too much instead of that being a sign that I'm lazy and weak. Um, Yeah.
2: So you can kind of adjust course. Well, here's a, I think a a
1: fine tuned
2: point about this that I just want to, I'm curious about your thoughts because I think as a clinical psychologist, sometimes people get into some avoidance patterns around certain tasks that might be important to them, but maybe- it's because it's uncomfortable, they don't want to do them. And definitely in your book, you're not advocating that people like, do nothing all day, every day, and they don't engage in some sort of productive, you know, activity. And certainly in your own life, you do you write books, and you teach and you do all these things. So I guess, what's where do you find the distinction between having courage and doing something uncomfortable versus Where it drifts too far into just ignoring your body's signals and um, overriding them? Like, where do you find the happy medium there, I guess? Or what's the distinction between the two?
1: Yeah, the way I think about it is that it isn't about drawing a medium uh, kind of middle ground between working really hard and like being completely listless and doing nothing. I think it's about a completely like a values reorientation and rethinking our understanding of how human nature works. This idea that people want to be or ever would succumb to just being completely listless and doing nothing, um, that that's some like force inside of yourself you need to be afraid of or balance, um, I would encourage people to let go of that fear entirely. Human beings want to feel like their lives matter. People want to feel connected. People want to do things that matter to them and stimulate them and challenge them. Um, unfortunately, a lot of times we are in situations where we don't have access to those things. So a lot of the people who look really apathetic or who are really depressed, they are people who have been denied agency time and time again in their lives. Or if someone seems to have no interest in doing any work, is it because most of the professional options we have available to people are jobs that are not fulfilling and don't line up with what a person values, right? Um, So Rebecca Solnit is this author who's just incredible. A lot of her work is incredible. Um, But a book of hers that I really like to point to is um, it's called A Paradise Built in Hell. And it's about natural disasters and emergencies and how when society breaks down following a big disaster, policymakers are usually really worried about the evil forces in human nature, that people are going to start rioting and looting and sleeping on the street and it's going to be chaos. And what actually happens when there are natural disasters um, or terrorist attacks or emergencies is people run towards the danger. People want to dig people out of the rubble, make food, find other people, connect. And she cites all these interviews with people from these natural disasters who they describe that period after society broke down, quote unquote, as their their favorite time of their whole lives because they actually got to feel useful and connected. And so many of us are craving getting to do something in our lives that actually matters. And so many of us have jobs that don't matter or that we can't really take much pride in, you know, um, or get, don't get that sense of fulfillment out of. So I would, I would say, generally speaking, we need to just like trust in human nature and understand that even if you need a lot of time to rest and recuperate right now, or even if you're depressed, like, No human actually wants to just lay on the couch all day. People want to make art. They want to show up for their families. They want to be really involved in their faith communities. People want to do things that matter. It's just that a lot of the things in life that matter to us are not rewarded under capitalism. And that's the real issue. So it's not about there being a happy medium between being lazy and being industrious. It's that we need to find a way to actually build society in such a fashion that the things that humans are actually motivated to do are rewarded and supported because right now the only thing that we really facilitate people doing is working um, and working for, you know, like a corporation or doing a lot of things that aren't necessarily fulfilling in those ways. And we could reorient society. So things like raising children, taking care of elders, making food for people, being a supportive ear for people, are things you could just choose to do with your life without having to worry about the bottom line as much. If that makes sense.
2: I love that. Yeah. Just a, a shift in how you think about it. And then that we talk a lot on this podcast about values and meaning. And I think that's absolutely critical, right? What's meaningful to you. And you will have that drive to do that. But maybe part of this trap is that the things that people are filling their lives with aren't, are, have actually gotten away from that meaning. Uh, but it can feel a little scary maybe to let go of that pattern when that's what people have been taught and what people have learned.
1: Yeah. It's, it's really intimidating and it's a really hard question because let's say you do decide, okay, I'm not someone who wants to constantly churn out productivity all the time in the conventional, like capitalist sense of it. My calling is to be there for people and to foster relationships and and things like that. How do you do that under capitalism? You know, one way that people might do that is by becoming a therapist or a teacher or, um, working in childcare or something like that. But like, it's actually really hard under capitalism to say, here's what my values are. Here's what really matters to me. How am I going to actually live doing right. that? thing?
2: How am so I going to pay the bills? Right.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. So it is really daunting and it creates this huge disconnect where, you know, it's hard to be a starving artist. It's hard to be someone who the meaning of your life is through the connections you have with the people you love. Um, and we almost treat people like that who are doing really important things for society as if they're like parasites or something. It's so twisted.
3: Hey, listeners, if you've loved learning about acceptance and commitment therapy on the podcast and you're a clinician who wants to incorporate more ACT into your clinical work, I have just the training for you. I'm offering my Breakthrough ACT Techniques and Experiential Exercises, a clinical roadmap to help clients overcome psychological distress through PESI. This is an on-demand training that you can access at my website, jillstoddard.com slash learn. This is an interactive way to really bring your clinical work, especially your work with ACT, to the next level. You will get six CEs, and I hope to see you there.
2: Well, there's a lot in your book about just some practical advice for people in different domains of life to get a little bit out of this trap. And I think I would really recommend people take a look at your book. I think it's so Worthwhile, but I wanted to just go through maybe a couple of examples from your book that had personal resonance for me and some of my clients and that kind of thing, because I think people will be able to relate. I think one I really want to start with, because I think it's such an important one, is around weight and bodies and exercise. And I think there's such a connection between like weight stigma and this laziness lie. And then also, you know, it's just another piece of that constant never feeling good enough. Could you just speak a little bit about that? Because I think that's a really important one.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And I am really informed on all of this from the work of fat liberationists specifically. So I do want to just kind of like name that. So like people like Aubrey Gordon, who writes um, under the moniker, Your Fat Friend, and people like that, highly recommend people look into her work. Um, but basically, the idea is under capitalism, a person, most people, unless you're wealthy and kind of own a factory or like own a way of generating profit, if you're not that person, your main way of getting by in life is what your body is capable of. So we treat bodies like objects. They're objects of, you know, productivity. They can produce something that then you can sell or you ha- they're capable of some kind of labor that can earn you money. Um, or they're an object of desire um, and you're objectified in that way. And that your way of attaining security in society is by how attractive you are and whether or not you can get a wealthy husband, all of these things. Um, and, and so that's a really um, objectifying, obviously, kind of way of looking at bodies. And it is almost always going to lead to fat phobia um, and ableism. Basically, any body that isn't set up uh, to meet kind of the productive ideal Is seen as wasteful, extravagant, requiring too many resources, and not conforming um, to what society wants bodies to be. Um, And this also tracks back to anti Blackness um, throughout history in a really deep way. Um, Our whole conception of what is a healthy body type is based on uh, just a very narrow range of like um, kind of skinny European people. And anybody whose body kind of deviates from that is also seen as abnormal and animalistic and greedy. That's also another thing that's really kind of wrapped up in this um, this idea that if you eat too much or if that you consume too much space with your body you're greedy you haven't earned the right to kind of take up space in that way and so that manifests in a lot of different really insidious ways first of all if you just look at like political cartoons and messaging in our media anytime um, a creator is trying to illustrate that someone is lazy or stupid or whatever, they usually draw that character as fat or they cast that character as fat. Um, we see it in political cartoons and, and regular cartoons and things like that all the time and like comedy, you know, films and things like that. Um, and, and the other way we see it is how we talk about exercise and dieting as signs of your virtue and your diligence. So if you, you know, eat these, you know, pristine kind of um, whatever uh, salads and goji berry bowls, you are a, Hardworking, industrious, valuable, attractive, appealing person. And if you don't exercise every day, even if it's just because you don't have time because you have a long commute and a long job, that's still nonetheless is a sign that you're lazy and worthless. And you know, if you get sick, it's your fault, and and um, you should have just tried harder to lose weight and all of these things. Um, so yeah, they're really inextricably linked, in my view, um, fat phobia and diet culture and um, the laziness lie
2: you know, I saw something, I wish I could remember the source on this because it was a couple of years ago about how our beauty standards, our attractiveness standards are, it takes so much energy. It's like tied to how much, how hard you can work to almost like beat your body into submission to, you know, look a certain way and you have to spend money on certain clothes and you have to exercise and eat in a certain way. And it's just like, even just thinking about it, it's so exhausting. And then you think about the other meaningful things you could be doing with your time or resting or whatever the case may be. And it's just, yeah, I mean, it's, you can never get there or try so hard. And it's like, for what, you know?
1: Right. And it's just treated as like the baseline, like, and, and and this also connects back to standards of what it means to look professional, which I'll also just like want to briefly highlight that, um, that we expect people to corral their bodies and make them conform to a certain standard, and that's just kind of like if you want to be respected, you have to meet this standard. And of course, it's very fatphobic. It's very white supremacist. There's lots of pressure if you have curly, uh, textured hair to straighten your hair, to you know dress in a very bland, inoffensive way that isn't sexual, doesn't reflect your home culture if your culture isn't European. All of these different things that conforms. Uh, to a very narrow set of gender standards, and um, and to just you know cover up every possible flaw or what's been deemed a flaw with whether it's with makeup or shapewear or um, changing your hair texture, changing your gender presentation, all of those things.
2: Right, cover up every ounce of your humanity. Almost, it feels uh-huh. like.
1: Yeah, absolutely, your yeah. individuality. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. Um, another area that I wanted to talk about. I learned a new word reading your book, cyber loafing, right? And I think you write about technology in a few ways in the book. One is around, you know, sometimes we take a break and goof off online. I do pretty much every day at some point. Um, And on the other hand, there's this pressure. I think this goes back to what you're just talking about. You know, the pressure to be insta-perfect on social media and post your perfect house and your perfect bikini picture, whatever the case may be. Um, and also just that information overload that we're bombarded with. So how do you, maybe even in your own life, or just generally recommend that people manage media consumption in a healthy way?
1: Yeah, it's really hard. Um, so, so the first piece, I guess, to touch on is all the ways in which technology has made the laziness lie even worse. Um, So in the industrial organizational psych literature, we have this idea of work-life interference, um, which is just uh, basically a a way of referring to the fact that as technology has consumed more and more of our lives and made us more and more accessible 24-7, the line between when you're on the clock and when you're off the clock has eroded into almost nothing. So you're always on call slack notifications could come at any time you know you can be emailed at any time but then in some ways now we're on an even faster paced schedule where you're supposed to reply to messages just instantaneously you can schedule a zoom meeting from anywhere and so how do you know when to set a limit and especially during the pandemic and work from home for many of us there has been no limit and no line between here's my workspace and here's where i relax and that um that means people never get to kind of psychologically just like check in with themselves and, and play and goof off and do things that are restorative and just have a life. Um, and so that's incredibly destructive um, and stressful. And at the same time, we also demonize people for using the internet in any way that isn't a work approved way, which is that cyber piece that you mentioned. Um, so things like checking Facebook while you're at work or online shopping or whatever, um, even though we actually know from the literature that that's just a natural part of the workday people are going to seek out some novelty seek out some social contact people need a break from repetitive boring tasks and it can actually be beneficial for us to do so um, so in terms of how do we balance all of these things I wish I knew you know um, <laughs> it's the a nature- hard question right <laughs> yeah I mean the nature of my work too is that I'm on social media a lot um, and and I try to think about it in terms of I do what I want. Like what do I actually want to do? So I am someone who I like being heard. I like ranting about the things that I'm passionate about. So I do like actually being on social media a lot, but I have to be really clear with myself about, I don't have any obligation to respond to notifications, to read all the comments, to respond to every message that I get. I'm doing this for free because I like it. um, And I'm not going to do the things that I don't like or feel that, you know, any expectations that people project on me are, are valid. Like I, they just aren't, you know, like those things are going to happen. Um, but that's easy for me to say because I can decide to do that. That's not the same thing as like, you know, you can't choose to just ignore emails from your boss, right? So it really depends on the situation that a person's in and what they can get away with. But we really desperately need a shift in the cultural norms away from this expectation that you're going to respond to every notification instantly.
2: Yeah. I feel like we could have a whole nother hour conversation on that. So we'll leave it here. But I do think, yeah, there is sometimes this sense of like, we have to be constantly responding to everything. We have to read every article we have to, it's like, that's too much pressure. And on the other hand, sometimes we're just gonna, you know, I like to watch Saturday Night Live skits sometimes on YouTube. And it's like, there's no crime in that. That's a nice way to relax actually when I'm like trying to work on something hard and I'm mentally fatigued, like, you know, it's okay.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And also like with this topic, I think with digital boundaries, there's a lot of scripts floating around for like, here's how you say in an email, Oh, don't expect a response within 24 hours. Or here's how you tell someone that you don't answer the phone after 6 PM and all this stuff. And I tend to say like, don't worry about me. Like you show people how to, what to expect from you from how you act and, you know, your boundaries about your behavior, you know, more than they're about forcing other people. So just like, when you can get away with it, just like don't answer the email until you're ready to answer the email. They'll figure out what your timeframe is from how you interact. You know what I mean? Like, I think the only way we're going to break out of this pattern is by just, again, refusing the oversized unrealistic expectations people have of constant access. It's just not humane. It's ridiculous.
2: Well, speaking of that, that's a perfect segue, because I think my favorite chapter in your whole book, it's titled, Your Relationships Should Not Leave You Exhausted. And I'm a bit of a people pleaser in recovery myself. I'm trying really hard to get out of that trap. I want to, if it's okay with you, I want to read a quote, because I actually read this to a client recently. It's from your book. The laziness lie has fundamentally warped our sense of boundaries, making many of us believe that other people's problems are ours to solve. It tells us that if we care for someone, we have to suffer to help them. Unfortunately, we can't actually fix another person's problems, so we end up frustrated and run down, realizing we've been pouring energy into helping someone who can't or won't meet us halfway. The laziness lie guilts us into taking on responsibilities that aren't ours to carry. Before we get wrapped up in yet another dramatic, ill-fated attempt to save someone, we ought to ask ourselves if another person's problems truly warrant our involvement. And if so, which kinds of involvement? From there, we can begin breaking out of the insecure, approval-seeking patterns that make us throw away hours of effort trying to help a person who isn't receptive to help. I mean, can I just say how much that chapter hit me like a ton of bricks? Because I think that is a part for people who try to gain the approval of others and to always be there for everyone, it does get, I think, to this really unhelpful place where it, it's just exhausting and it's too much and it doesn't really get us anywhere.
1: Yeah. And it often makes you resent people who you're pouring all this energy into when they like didn't even ask, you know, like we, we set ourselves up for so much frustration and failure thinking, you know, Oh, I have to solve this person's problem for them. I have to manage their emotions. Um, and maybe, you know, and sometimes of course people do come to us with that expectation directly. And it's just, I've just seen so many people, you know, it's just an unhealthy dynamic in their families and their romantic relationships, uh, just really enmeshed friendships. And yeah, it's, it's exhausting.
2: Yeah. Well, any people pleasers out there who are listening, I think you should check it out because you have, you actually have some things to say to people. And I find that really helpful. I'm going to like, I don't know, photocopy it and pin it on the wall or something like that to say to people to just, you know, it's not uncaring, but it's like a way to just kind of say, you know, I support you, but I'm not going to take this on as my problem, basically.
1: Right. And getting comfortable with disappointing people. Like if you're a people pleaser and you think that you always need to say yes, because saying no is less productive and less virtuous and less caring, like you're initially going to feel really freaked out when you say no to someone and they have an emotional reaction to it. So just getting used to weathering those initial bad feelings and realizing it actually isn't your job to keep everyone satisfied. And it's okay for people to be disappointed because then they're getting useful information that lets them recalibrate their expectations. And that will be helpful for them in the long run um, and for the relationship. Uh, It's such a, a challenging skill, but oh my gosh, it once you start building up some of those relational skills and distress tolerance, it's it's so worth it. It's, it's incredible. It's such a superpower to to be able to be like, no, I'm not available for that. And to not have to explain it. Like, oh, it's like, it's addictive really. Like it's, it's like a rush once you feel comfortable doing it.
2: Yeah. Even though it has that initial pain sometimes of people being a little miffed by it, it feels really good to, you know, save yourself. Right. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. Once you just like start living in a way where you're not constantly like feeling dread and resentment about, oh, I need to go do this thing because I said yes. And, you know, I really didn't want to, but I need to, because otherwise this person will be mad at me. And one time they did this thing for me. Like once you just like let go of all that and actually listen to your gut for the most part, oh, it's you. Have, it, it just makes your relationship so much better and frees up so much brain space. It's just- Yeah. It. Liberating.
2: Yeah. Yes. Well, to to sort of end the interview here in a moment, I just there's one final, I guess, topic or question I want to throw out there because you've done activism and in your book one of the things you write about is activism fatigue and clearly, I mean there is just such a social justice component to this line of work. So to just think culturally and systemically, if there was something you could change in the world, whether it's like I don't know some part of this that's really ingrained, or some cultural messaging, or something like. What would you like to see change if you could be in charge of the universe and change something?
1: Oh gosh, you know, um, a lot of people step away from the book saying um, that it's an argument for universal basic income or something like that. I think in terms of policy matters, I think things like that, like building up more of a social Support system that isn't based on proving that you deserve it or that you need it badly enough that it's okay for you to get assistance, um, I think is kind of the the first uh, point in terms of like if I could wave a magic wand and just change one thing about the world, um, having some kind of universal basic income where anybody could live, no matter how productive they are or aren't, I think would really free us up to think about okay, how do I actually want to live? How do I actually want to spend my time? And can I actually believe that all lives are valuable, no matter what a person is doing or not doing with that life? Um, That would really be the thing, because I don't know how to like wave my hand and undo history and undo the culture um, when it is as deep-seated as it is. But I think if we got rid of how coercive capitalism is um, and gave people some autonomy to decide what they wanted to do with their lives, that would... That would change a lot.
2: That would go a long way. Well, I appreciate you being here because I think conversations like this are happening and I think that they are a step. So I appreciate your work. And I was just wondering, Devin, how can people find you on social media or keep track? I know you have your next book coming out. How can people um, learn more or find you online?
1: Sure, yeah. So I post writing um, regularly on devinprice.medium.com. So that's devonpric And so those are like essays and blog posts, and those are all free to read. Um, on social media, so Twitter and Instagram, um, I'm at Dr. Devin Price, so just Dr. Um, devin Price. Um, and then my, my books are pretty much everywhere. You can get Laziness Does Not Exist anywhere. Books are sold. And um, Unmasking Autism comes out in April of 2022. Um, and that's pre-orderable anywhere that books are sold if that's uh, a subject that's interesting to you as well.
2: Well, we can't wait for your next book and thank you again so much for joining us today.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon.
3: You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for
2: informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.